You are listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Thanks, Charlie. I'm excited to share our episode today with Amy Hubble. Amy stumbled into financial planning accidentally, and she's never looked back. In this episode, Amy shares how she got started in financial planning as a trust officer and what her path to founding her own RAA looked like. So if you're thinking of making the leap into launching your own RAA or taking the CFP exam, Amy's advice on what credentials to get and how to fearlessly take on big challenges will inspire you. In addition to her practice, Amy focuses a lot of her effort on charitable giving. Specifically, she helped founded the Heartbeat for Hope, a charity that provides small capital to maintain education centers in Africa for impoverished women. This is a big part of both her life and her business, and we love seeing a financial planner incorporate giving into her organization. Amy has been named one of Investment News 40 Under 40 and has been a longtime advocate for fiduciary planning. We hope you enjoy her story and embrace some of the wisdom that she shares here. Well, thank you, Amy, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here Monday. Yeah. So can you tell us, how did you get into financial planning? Well, I, like I told you, I kind of fell into it completely by accident. didn't even trip and fall into it. Maybe I was pushed. I don't know. Um, but I, I got a business degree and I had no kind of background in financial planning, didn't know what a financial planner was, didn't really have any direct desire to go into kind of money business at all. I mean, maybe I did, but I really had no idea when I graduated from college what I wanted to do. And I, I got very, very lucky in that I had worked as an intern for Devon Energy, which, you know, Oklahoma City, uh, much like Texas, very oil and gas heavy. So you, you either go to the oil and gas you know, industry or <laughs> move somewhere else. And so I had decided that I didn't really feel like that was the right move for me and I you know was about to graduate with no job and some a, a guy that I'd actually it was very interesting and it was just one of those universal things is that I'd gone on a mission trip over spring break with the president of Heritage Trust Company's son just randomly and I guess he when we had like the roundup of that mission trip he had come to that and he just randomly handed me his card. And this, I mean, this is after spring break my senior year. Like I'm about to move back in with my parents and like, I don't know, be a bank tailor or something. And he just hands me his card and he's like, I don't know what you're looking for or if we're even hiring, but you know, if you even just need some practice interviewing or would want to talk to me, um, here's my card and give me a call. And I know I knew what a trust company was. He, his, he had like credentials. He had a CTFA and he had a CPA and I was like, I'm not an accountant. Um, but just on a whim, I went to talk to him cause I didn't have a job. And, uh, they basically created a position for me, which was basically the receptionist, but I was the marketing assistant and was kind of helping getting some of their, their president and the, the chairman and the marketing guy kind of all organized and uh, so they hired me and I was, went to work for a trust company and uh, eight years later I was you know basically the head of trust and head of relationship management and been a portfolio management manager and they'd you know <laughs> done a lot of great things for me and so that's that's kind of how I accidentally became a financial planner. Oh, that's great. So for the listeners who are listening to this and may have heard of a trust officer or a trust company, but 
or maybe they even haven't heard of that. Can you just tell what is a trust company and what do you do as a trust officer? Yeah, exactly. I had no idea what that was either. And so I went to work there in 2007 in the good days, you know, and I had (laughs) sat at my reception desk and I was like, started Googling what a trust was basically, Uh, which is very embarrassing to admit, but I mean, they just didn't have any background in it. I I don't have a trust fund of my own, unfortunately. Uh, So a trust company is basically an asset management company that uh, can take in assets and not just not just monetary assets or stocks and bonds or things like that, but they can manage real estate, they can manage um, oil and gas interests, they can manage priceless artwork, they can manage cars, they can they can honestly act as you in whatever situation that you might find yourself. Maybe it's a situation where you don't have any family and you need to go into a nursing home and you need somebody to make sure that your bills are paid. Maybe after you're gone, you think that your children might fight. And so you want to go ahead and put in kind of a third party to kind of be the referee in a lot of those situations. But in in honesty, the most of what we work with is um, high net worth financial planning is really what it is. I mean, you you don't have to name a trust company as trustee, you don't have to hand it over to them. They can be your agent. They can pay your bills for you. They can manage your assets. They can really do anything that a uh, person could do for you or that a financial planner could do for you. It's actually a bank. I mean, it is it is a bank. They are the custodian. And so you it's kind of a different it's kind of a different model than kind of the traditional RA route or the traditional financial planning situation. I mean, you do things for people that you would never believe. I mean, I at one point had to push a car, a Corvette, out of somebody's driveway and and, and jump it like in my heels and, take, and then drive it to, to CarMax and get it kind of appraised and everything else. I've had to pull open little old ladies' cabinets and get their... 16 guns that they're hiding in there. I've had to uh, actually purchase underwear for for a client that was in a nursing home, did not have any family, and um, was struggling being able to get to the store. I mean, it really is uh, the whole gamut. It's a very interesting business and very, I think, fulfilling business. Um, But that is definitely my background and and what uh, I still really enjoy doing. So as a trust officer, I mean, you're, I mean, those are pretty intimate things to be involved in a client's life with. Um, was that, so you, it's beyond just the money side of it. I mean, it's really into like the day-to-day taking care of somebody. Very much so. And I mean, you think about what it takes to take care of somebody, if that means paying their taxes, if that means making sure that they have home health care coming in and you're paying them, that you're paying the bills, if that means, whatever that means of uh, taking care of somebody, that's that's the service that we offer. I mean, that sounds more high touch than some RAs. Very, very <laughs> high know. touch, very high touch. And so then, how does the trust company get paid? Trust company gets paid, number one, assets under management. That's how um, they got paid. It's fee only. Um, there, there is no kind of, there's certainly no commissions. There's no insurance sales or anything like that. It's, it is the, the definition of fee only. Um, it's, it's the original fiduciary, you know, that we, 
we've, we've just now kind of heard this fiduciary word coming across the, the pike. And obviously RIAs have been fiduciaries forever too, but trust companies are kind of like, how come this was never never an issue that we were driving this? And that's that's kind of the drive. And trust companies really should have been pushing that fiduciary uh, push all along because they've always been trust companies. So tell me what it was like to be coming straight out of college and basically be working at the receptionist desk. Like, what was that experience like? Well, like I said, I got lucky. This company started actually in 19... 19- uh, 98, and a big bank had come in and purchased kind of um, another smaller bank that used to be very local, and they just didn't really like the way um, that their customers were being treated, the fee structure that was coming in, the the big bank kind of push for additional products and additional proprietary uh, pushes. So a couple, one of the major families um, partnered with several of the trust officers from that particular bank, and they started this company. And so I came in about, you know, within 10 years after they got started. And I was, I was really the first hire that they had under, uh, under 40 for sure. So, I mean, I was the most interesting thing, regardless of what I did. I was <laughs> the most interesting thing that was going on, which was kind of fun. And I actually, I got several dads out of the situation, especially you think about um, coming in and working for a company that at the time only had about 13 employees and, uh, Guys that knew exactly what what they were doing have been doing this for decades, and uh, the opportunity to spend time with them, the opportunity to learn from them, in in really the situation that I was in, in being very very lucky and just being the first kind of young person to come in, um, really really benefited me. I mean now uh, that company has has a beautiful downtown office and they employ forty five people, so it's a definitely a different and probably at least. Now, 30% of those people, maybe more, are are younger people now. Oh, that's great. So you started there. Did you start studying for your CFP exam right away? I mean, is that something that you pursued? Or what were kind of the designations or exams that you took? Yeah, I obviously have a, a, <laughs> a love for designations in education, I guess. <laughs> I hopefully am, am coming to the end of is my, is my goal. Uh, somebody tried to to ask me about a new designation the other day. And I was like, no, no more. (laughs) Um, I I had never really heard of the CFP exam. Um, In in general, again, I hadn't ever thought about financial planning as a, as, as a, as a profession or as a job or something that I would want to go into. I obviously knew kind of what stockbrokers did, but that wasn't even kind of the idea that I had in my mind of what a stockbroker even was. I thought investment bankers were the same as stockbrokers. Again, I not not at all learned in this area, but that what kind of got me was the reason I started pursuing designations is because I was, um, yeah, obviously in a unique position to be able to see kind of how the entire business was working because it was so small at that time and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I had moved out of the, I I was promoted, I guess, um, out of the the receptionist job pretty quickly. And I went to be a a trust officer's assistant basically. And I was assisting three of them. And so I was in a lot of those meetings and I really just felt uncomfortable with myself of not knowing what, 
you know, the rules were or what they were talking about or what solutions that we could give. So again, I got on Google and uh, started looking and seeing what educational programs might help me with that. I came across the CFP exam and, you know, brought it to, to my bosses and I said, you know, this might just be, it sent me to trust school, which ultimately took the CTFA exam, which is through the Institute of, of Certified Bakers. But but ultimately I went and I said, you know, can I start taking these CFP classes? I just think that they'd be a good educational background for me. So, I mean, personally, so I can feel confident in these meetings, so I can feel like I know what I'm doing and I'm really enjoying this business. I really am on board with what you guys are doing and I, I like this. I think that it is something I'd like to uh, invest in if you'll invest in me. And they said, yeah, absolutely. We're very excited that you want to learn more about our business and that you want to be educated. And so my employer was very, very glad to, to support me in the CFP courses, which I took online and then ultimately uh, took, the, took the CFP exam in, in uh, fall of 2008. Very nice. So did you feel like the CFP exam gave you that confidence that you were looking for? Yes, absolutely. And that's what I, I tell people all the time is I know sometimes, especially as a younger person, especially as a woman, you you are in those meetings and you're just struggling whether or not you know your stuff or not. I think the CFP designation does a lot to kind of boost your own uh, knowledge, to, to boost your own self-confidence there, even if you're handing a card to somebody and, and I I don't know what age I look even today. I don't know what age I look. I was at the gym last week and talking to somebody of course I'm in my early thirties and, and they were saying, Oh well you, I thought you were in in your in college at UGA like it, it as an undergrad, which you know, I'm at the gym so I probably don't look great, but <laughs> That's a, at this point in my life, that's a compliment. But I think even when I was 22, I mean, I had braces when I was 22. I mean, I probably looked about eight when I was when I was 22. And so, it, even kind of getting that uh, confidence through at least myself knowing what I was knowing that I knew what I was talking about felt like I could then um, expand and, and and make the people that I was talking to feel like. That, that I knew what they were talking about, because that's ultimately, especially at a trust company, you're talking with people that are, um, are, have millions and millions of dollars and expect that level of service and expect that level of expertise. And so it is, you know, a little scary to go in, especially in a meeting by yourself where, where you may not have that self-confidence right off the bat. Oh, that's great. So you have more credentials. Yes, <laughs> and, and more exams. Can you kind of walk through on a timeline the various, because you have your MBA. Yeah. And you're in prog your, your PhD, you're in progress for that. And you're actually teaching a course right now. So can you kind of walk through, like, what inspired you to go back and get your MBA? Um, it was an MBA kind of, regardless of that, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. An MBA was always just kind of one of those things where I was like, well, I'll have an MBA. I'm just, I just felt in my mind that I was an MBA type of person. I, I didn't know exactly what in business I wanted to be in, but I knew that I wanted to be in business and I knew that I wanted an MBA. And so I, you know, looked around when, when I, I think I had finished the CFP. I must've been, I must've finished the CFP. Even, I'd even uh, uh, applied you're making me think here on my time timeline. Uh, but I had applied for an MBA program, a couple MBA programs right out of college, because again, I had no idea what I was 
doing or where I wanted to go work, so I thought I'd just keep going to school because I'm pretty good at school. And uh, the programs that I really wanted to hadn't worked out. Um, my GMAT score was not uh, super stellar. Um, so I kind of put that on the back burner anyway. And then once, um, I, I guess I'm just a sucker for feeling like I, if I'm sitting still for a second, I need to go and look and see what other educational <laughs> <laughs> endeavors I can pursue. Uh, but yeah, once I had taken the CTFA and the CFP, I think that the MBA was just my next kind of uh, conquest. So I, again, talked to my employers and I would, had thought about going full-time um, at first, and then they said, you know, you know, we'll help you with the MBA process if uh, you want to continue working here and do the MBA at night, and so that ended up working really, really well. I got an MBA through, through the University of Oklahoma and did, did classes at night and gained a lot of friendships and gained a lot of relationships through that, and... Um, to feel really, really good about about that process and how that worked, and again was able to keep keep working and keep um, getting better at what I was doing at, at my employer too. So with that MBA, do you feel like it helped you in your relationship with clients and beyond just the confidence level or knowledge? I guess working with clients. I don't know. The MBA was a little bit different because it's not as focused on you know exact. You know, the CFP is so practical. You know, you learn the rules as they are at, the, at that time, and you're able to honestly apply, you know, whatever you're learning at the rules um, at the very beginning, whereas an MBA is much broader on the technical side or kind of the business strategy side. And so I got a lot more kind of expertise in accounting practices, got a lot more expertise in negotiation. Um, Again, made some amazing relationships with people that were also working at the same time and also wanted to be there in school, which is, was a completely different, not that people don't want to be there as an undergraduate, but in a, in a master's degree where everyone else is working full time during the day, um, you just really get a caliber of people that do want to be there. And you, so you get to kind of make those relationships and stuff understand their industries better and understand your own industries better and kind of see how other people's um, business trajectories have gone. So that's really the most value that I got out of it. And so you knock out your MBA, and so the next logical choice is the CFA? Of course, that was the next logical <laughs> choice. And at the time, I was a, I was a portfolio manager um, for, my, for my employer, and so that was kind of an understanding is that they were hoping to kind of get um, all the portfolio managers at the trust company to be CFA charter holders. And so, yeah, I, fin I graduated um, my MBA in 2012 and took level one of the CFA um, that same month and just by accident passed that first level, which is very, very, very difficult. Um, and, then, and then went on through, through the process of the CFA program, which was, um, I, I will tell you, the most difficult thing I have ever done and probably will, will ever do in, in all of my educational pursuits. The CFA program is, is certainly the, the hardest. So at this point with a trust company, you are a portfolio manager. Can you talk about what does a portfolio manager do and kind of what is that job function? Yeah, portfolio management is, uh, you know, I was, I was not necessarily on the side that was buying underwear at this point. I mean, I was on the side that I was buying stocks, I was buying bonds, um, I was 
actively on the investment committee. I was contributing to stock selection committee. I was looking at, at stocks on a much deeper level. Um, I was actively talking to bond brokers every single day looking for, and this, these were in the good days where we could buy bonds with yields. And I was, you know, I was actively talking with clients. Um, in our in our firm, we had every client was assigned a portfolio manager and a relationship manager. So anytime that there was a quarterly review or any kind of performance review, an investment officer would be brought in, obviously, to, to speak to that. And some clients need more of that. Some clients need less of that. Some clients, you know, it, it goes the gamut of, of whichever side uh, is needed. And obviously, a lot of clients don't necessarily need a portfolio management or manager in the room if that's not the main focus of the meeting. Um, but a lot of our clients were much more focused on the portfolio management side. And so that was, you know, working through the CFA program, being a CFP, um, coming out of the MBA, that was a new challenge that I was very excited about. Um, and then ultimately had moved back over to the trust side after a couple of years over in investments. And so those are really two separate like job functions within that trust company like those were two very different roles absolutely same clients um, but definitely different roles different day-to-day different expectation level so you were at the trust company for eight years is that right yeah eight years and so what kind of prompted you to want to make a move yeah i i uh would not have said that right off the bat that it was something that it was my goal to, to own my own business someday. But after um, I had become a CFP and had gotten involved in FPA and, and especially been involved in NextGen, which I know a lot of a lot of our friends and a lot of listeners are, are very involved in NextGen. That's how we all kind of met and that's how we all kind of built our businesses um, was just talking to people that who knew what they were doing, talking to people that were using other softwares. And ultimately, just kind of getting to the point where I I was working a lot for for the trust company at the time, and it was an issue that was causing some some negative feelings in my life, just from an issue of, of time that I was spending there, and, and just from from the level of stress that I was experiencing. And and I was you know thirty, almost thirty years old at this point, and really um, had some good advice from a, a good friend that told me that I. If it was something that I did want to do, which was um, ultimately uh, run my own business, that I should quit before I couldn't afford to not quit. And so I certainly have wonderful feelings for for that company and everything they did for me. Continue to have wonderful friends there. Continue to think that they are doing um, exactly what they need to be doing. Uh, but at that time, it was really an issue that I didn't need to go ahead and step away and try to get some flexibility in my life and and kind of try, try to trying to just have a new adventure at that point. And so we, I think, parted on pretty good ways and I was able to go ahead and start start my own business and then ultimately um, add get a Ph.D. as kind of one of my hobbies. <laughs> I feel like embarrassed of my hobbies now. I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> when, when people have to ask me what my hobbies are, I'm like, well, working <laughs> and sleeping and that's it. Okay. So let's talk about your PhD. There's, there's mm-hmm. so much here. Okay. So your PhD and it's in consumer economics. Is that right? And yeah, it's in consumer economics and financial planning. Okay. From university of Georgia. Yeah. 
So you live in Oklahoma, right? Are, is, are you doing this virtually or how, how is this working? Yeah, I, I live in both. You know, I'm actually in Georgia right now and I've been, I'm in Georgia for the majority of the school year, but I go back and forth pretty, pretty often. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be in Oklahoma at least um, a couple days a month in the office working and seeing people. But most of my business during the school year is is digitally done, which is not, you know, very, very difficult in today's environment, honestly. And just the sheer number of clients that I have is just nothing like, like the number of clients that I had working at a trust company. You're able to do that a lot, a lot easier. Um, so yeah, going back and forth, I'm in Georgia today. It's the eclipse day it got really dark, but I dragged my feet on getting those glasses. So I couldn't actually see it. <laughs> Me too. Oh, so, so you're in Georgia. So are you, so you're going to school for the PhD program and you're also teaching a course. Yeah, I'm co-teaching a seminar course and we were talking about this a little before we started, but um, Georgia has a clinic here. It's called the Aspire Clinic and they actually offer pro bono financial counseling, financial planning services to the community. And so anyone from the community or teachers or students or graduate students can come in and they can sit down with one of our students, undergraduate students or graduate students. And then every week, these students hold a seminar. And so I kind of help facilitate this seminar in that they're bringing their cases or the, the issues that the people that they're seeing in their financial counseling uh, meetings, they're bringing the issues that they're having. And then together, all of us, there's about uh, 10 students in the seminar, um, we're coming up with with creative ideas. We're coming up with with people that are know um, a good resource to reach out to if one person's kind of weaker on kind of what to recommend or what might be a good strategy. Um, we kind of all work together to kind of come up with that strategy. And obviously, I, I'm able to to bring a little bit of a little more knowledge to the table as far as what strategies are, and then kind of um, hopefully hopefully disseminate that knowledge. Uh, throughout the students. So it's really rewarding. I really enjoy it. And actually, it's it's stretched me quite a bit, too, because the people that are coming in for pro bono counseling are are really coming in with different issues than, say, people that are coming into a trust company are coming into. Uh, so I've actually learned a lot through the process, too. So I really enjoy it. That's really neat. So with your PhD program, is there are you doing research? Are you kind of are you contributing in the research world or yeah we're doing a lot of really exciting research i mean through the clinic even that's a it's a research clinic and we're able to collect a lot of data from people that are coming in and uh getting the financial planning services so it's kind of a, a dual situation i'm involved in a lot of the research projects that are going through there and then hopefully in the spring i'll be starting my own writing my dissertation process i'm, I'm finishing up uh, my coursework this semester, and then I'll be kind of full-time dissertation in the spring and hopefully graduate in the in May. And so can you share what your dissertation is about or kind of what you want to study? I don't actually have it finalized, no, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good questions that are being asked out there. There's a lot of issues that I'm especially close to. HSAs are one of them, investment biases, um, a lot of the behavioral things that come into uh, investment portfolio choice, um, risk tolerance. Um, yeah, I can't say exactly what it will be on exactly, but it's it's starting to come together on some of those questions that that I find interesting, and then I think that I can that I can dig a little bit deeper through. 
One of the things I'm always harping on is if we really want to become a profession, we have to figure out how to integrate this research with our day-to-day practices. And so my question for you would be, as a practitioner and as a researcher, uh, for the people listening to this podcast who may be newer in their careers or just starting out or just starting their own firm, where can they go or how can they start getting exposed to a lot of this research that's happening right now? Yeah, it's actually, it's so hard. And I actually harp on these guys all the time because academic research is not fun to read. It's not fun to write either. And so it's very hard, you know, when it, when, especially in the academic research realm or in the academic research literature, where a lot of these solutions are are basically written in math. And so that's really difficult for being able to take away. So I do, I have been trying to contribute to as much even the writing process as I can in the literature that that I'm being asked to to look over or some of the implications for financial planners that I can look over and trying to at least point out some of the, the issues that are um, coming up and some of the findings that we're finding. And, and the research is really, it's a very slow moving process. It takes um, one step at a time and one researcher bouncing off of another researcher and then another idea coming off of another idea. So I look at, at journals like the Journal of Financial Planning that, that does a really good job of at least presenting it really well um, in a nice colorful magazine that, that's a little bit easier to read and I think is much more pushed towards kind of the, the practitioner standpoint. Uh, without being too overwhelming, make sure that the graphs are readable and things like that. And I think that that's hopefully what, I mean, hopefully what journals would move towards. That would be my desire. I don't know that that's the desire of the academic world, but um, I'm, I'm one vote if I ever, if I ever get to do it. <laughs> but yeah, I have the same problem. It's, it, that yeah. stuff is hard to read and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to especially make time in your day to weed through it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you start eight years at a trust company um, and you start your own firm. What was that experience like? Uh, you learn a lot about yourself, which you know. Is. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah, I always considered myself to be uh, an introverted worker. And, you know, I especially when I worked with so many people around me, I would go to work and obviously do my work. And then sometimes I would go to the gym and then I would come back to the office after I went to the gym when everybody was gone. And that's when I would actually get my work done. So I always thought that I'd be really good at that. And then it turns out that when you, when you actually are just have an entire day stretching in front of you, that you really have to set some traps for yourself to kind of understand how um, you work and how you understand in that, I did learn that I do not work very well alone, that I actually need somebody to kind of monitor me um, and kind of know know that um, even kind of setting an expectation that you're going to see somebody, setting an expectation that you're going to be at a be at the office at a certain time, that you're even going to take a shower and not wear um, yoga pants to the office is what a, one of those things that you're going to change. And so I had to do a lot of kind of shuffling and kind of trial and error on kind of how my office situation was going to be uh, set up and how I was going to spend my day and when I was going to be in the office and how I was going to conduct myself to kind of find find that sweet spot of of how I work best. And that's 
that I think is the most important thing to um, realize because you, you do, once you're on your own, you do, you are responsible a hundred percent for uh, how you're going to eat that day. I mean, you do have to hustle and you got to get it done, but there's nothing necessarily, you don't have to report to anybody. There's nobody reporting to you. There's no um, accountability beyond, you know, the goals that you're setting for yourself. So you do have to be, or at least get good at that and, and find a way to push yourself that way. I don't know if it was the same for you, but it was, that was a big challenge for me. Oh, huge transition. Absolutely huge transition. And I think compounding, I mean, I don't know, you know, people who start out who don't have the revenue, it's just stress on stress on stress Mm -hmm. um, that you don't really know. Uh, Did you bring clients from the trust company to your own practice or did you really start from zero? Yeah, some of the clients did come over with me. So I, I was lucky in that in that manner. And so I it wasn't even and this is my own perspective. So it wasn't necessarily the revenue that I was most worried about, but it was a, just kind of a personal um, vendetta that I wanted to make sure that I did not fail at this. And that was that was probably a bigger driver for me in that, yeah, revenue was happening. But I also knew that I had enough money saved that I was not going to starve necessarily, even if I was just able to get even half the clients that maybe I thought might come over. Um, that wasn't too big of an issue for me. But the issue of I am going to be able to do this and that I am not going to fail at this was probably a bigger driver than even the the dollars and cents issue. So when you brought the clients over, did you have to pay for them or was there just, you were just able to do that and they just changed advisors? Yeah, they changed advisors and I really was very careful because, you know, they're, sorry, um, were, there were certainly non-competes in place. And so I, and I did also wanted to stay in good graces with my former employer. I, I did not want to just light those bridges on fire. Um, as I walked away, Oklahoma city is a small wealth management community. And I, again, had so much respect for the company that I worked for that I did not want to do it the wrong way. And so I, I, probably could have hammered harder maybe, but I also wanted to make sure that the clients were going to be um, in the best place for them too. And so I do think that was a little bit unique of a situation in that there's, there's a lot of clients that I couldn't bring. And a lot of them were trust clients and I don't have trust powers. And I didn't really want to partner with kind of a, a no name, um, somebody that was renting me their trust powers. And really if they needed trust work, they needed to be at a trust company. And so I tried to keep that, um, as a driver of when I was, when I was creating my clients and yes, clients did come over and I, I certainly answered the phone when they called and encouraged them to come over. But I did try to, um, at least do that as delicately as possible because I have a lot of respect for, for that former employer. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting transition when you move companies and we're in such a unique field where you can take revenue some places you have the opportunity to possibly take revenue, but how do you do that? Well, yeah. And it's, it's hard. And it was an issue of that firm is actually purchased by a large kind of regional bank. And so a lot of the people that I'd kind of grown up working with were retiring. So it was kind of a good, when that transaction happened, it was actually kind of a good breaking point for me to go ahead and, and cut ties, not a hundred percent, but at least cut my employment ties and feel, 
feel like I at least left them in a place where they were they were going to be in a good place and I was going to be in a good place and it was going to be better for me. And I think a lot of people understood that too. Yeah. So are all of your clients in Oklahoma city? Majority are in Oklahoma. Um, especially at first they were all in Oklahoma. I do have a few scattered about, um, but they all for the most part either have a connection with me personally or in Oklahoma in some way. And so your client base, are they more that high net worth client like you had at the trust company? Um, at first they were because they all the clients that came over were really the trust company um, side. But I also wanted to make sure that I was able to serve really anybody that was going to be willing to do what it took or willing to do it right. And I think that was kind of the... The breaking point is, you know, at the trust company, we're mostly working with people who had already made their money and were kind of in the distribution stage of their, you know, life or of their financial situation versus I did want to start working with people who maybe hadn't made their money yet, but were dedicated to saving. And really the RIA model uniquely, I think, gives you the opportunity now with technology to be able to work with people who are willing to save a certain amount every month, even if they don't necessarily have um, a big pot of money already just waiting to hand you into cash a million dollars. That's always great when you can get one of those. Um, But I also wanted to work with people that were my age. I wanted to work with people who were just trying to do the right thing, who were excited about um, their future that want that wanted to really collaborate with me on a long-term plan, and so that was that was very uh, a pillar of what I wanted to start the the firm to do too. And so, with clients like that, how do you service them, and how do they pay you, and kind of what's your your structure for that? Yeah, I have developed kind of a little mini robo. I mean, it's a robo that that I kind of run, but it's. I say bare bones, but it's, it is trying to eliminate any of that customization that I run with a lot of the bigger portfolios, whereas a lot of the bigger portfolios, I do run a stock portfolio. I will purchase individual bonds. I will individually um, look at your tax loss harvest situation versus I run now a, what I call the accelerator program. And the minimum deposit every month is $500. So I'm able to kind of keep up there as far as, you know, being able to grow the account in addition to if there's not necessarily any money there. And so it's automatic rebalancing. Um, I work through TD Ameritrade um, and I use ETFs that are commission free. I use iRebal and automatic rebalancing, automatic ACH payment pools. And then anything beyond kind of that asset management side, I, I do kind of hourly consulting. Very nice. So do you do for what, you know, these, younger people who have that $500 to invest, is it a flat fee that you charge them? I mean, do you do like the monthly retainer model or what does that kind of look like? It's AUM and it's uh, for, for any asset level under uh, 180,000, it's 1.1% and it's deducted just like all the rest of my AUM clientele. Interesting. And so you do, do you do a financial plan for them? Um, not typically. I mean, I will do a little bit of just right off the bat, starting off what type of accounts we need to open. Um, but if they are really looking for a full financial plan, then that's hourly on top of that. 
Very interesting. It, it, what's so exciting to me is how you can really design whatever service model fits the client and really fits you in this business. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's ex- exactly what I hear from a lot of people. A lot of people focus more on the financial planning side. I tend to focus more on the investment side just because that's my background. Um, would like to get back into more financial planning, but that's just not possible when I'm kind of living in, in two states right now. But hopefully next year when I'm a little more centralized, I'll be able to to focus a little bit more on the planning side. But yeah, in the investment, the investment side is really kind of my re- my bread and butter and the building and models and, and making sure that asset allocation is correct and asset, specifically asset placement, what type of accounts are we investing in? And I'm able to do it very cheaply for, for me and for them. Right, by using like the iReBal and, and various software. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to take as much of that you know, out of the equation as possible. I don't want to be, I don't want to spend my day, as you know, spend my day um, doing unnecessary paperwork or trying to to mess with something that, that is not going to be um, either in my best interest or their best interest. I want to use my time well, and I think I've developed a good a good pipeline to be able to do that. So one of the things that I find so interesting about you, especially being in your early 30s, is uh, the Heartbeat for Hope. Can you tell people what this is about and kind of how it got started? Absolutely. A Heartbeat for Hope is a nonprofit 501c3 uh, organization that I got involved with. Kind of, I mean, through college and then after college, I actually had a friend who had moved to Ghana and to, to work in an uh, orphanage called the Village of Hope. And she had been over there for a couple of years and I love to travel. And so an opportunity came up and this was, I was young and poor that somebody had donated to her two Delta buddy passes to be able to come to, to Africa and me and um, another friend who had been kind of supporting her with as much, you know, kind of money as we had um, every month or so in, in her work over there, we were able to go and visit her. And so seeing kind of what, the need was there and kind of what the situation with the orphanage was, was, was really an eye-opening experience for me. I'd never been, never been to Africa and certainly never been um, involved in any kind of, kind of business transaction that was outside of, of the United States. But when she actually came back, there was some opportunities for us to get involved with, um, vocational training for women, which has really been a, a big, uh, push to be able to try to empower women to be able to pay the school fees for their children and then ultimately create sustainable uh, models of living. And there's just not, the infrastructure doesn't exist over there in Ghana where there's they can just, you know, graduate from high school and then go get a job. That's just not a thing. There's not, there's not huge companies that have come in and, and invested in um, factories or manufacturing in Ghana like there is here or even in some of the other developing countries. So it's really a very entrepreneurial uh, workspace. So trying to offer training to especially people that were not necessarily going to have the opportunity to then goes into empowering them forever. And then we were able to partner with uh, Heartbeat for Hope to try to um, get more structure and get more ability to raise money and to now we do some work with 
Um, another vocational training school that actually takes teenagers off of the street and gives them a two-year basically training program in textiles, in auto mechanics. They kind of choose a major in catering and skills that are able to market and skills that are they're going to be able to make a living at. And so that is money that you're basically putting in one as an investment and then that money, then the, the training center is able to continue going on its own because they can make the products, sell the products, and then that can be re-recycled. And so that's been a big issue for me is always trying to keep centralized the money that we're putting in there. We don't try to take over a lot of things. If we're purchasing things, we want to purchase things over there, help another person who's an entrepreneurial and just kind of let that wheel round. And so, yeah, that's, that is a big um, part of my life. I'm going again in January, I think. So I'm, I'm very excited to go uh, again and see kind of what, where we are on that stuff. And so is this a microloan program? Yeah, we've done a little bit of microloans. We, I won't say that we have perfected it yet, but uh, we have made some microloans to people that we know and uh, to people that have provided us um, with uh, very well-written business plans and that we can track and we can follow and we really feel like we can be involved in uh, the microloans that we're making. We've made some microloans for uh, somebody buying a taxi you know a taxi driver over there has to rent their taxi every single day and some day those some days they'll make enough money to pay for the rental of their taxi that day and some days they won't but you never really get ahead that way so by making a loan they can buy the taxi then they're paying the taxi back now they own the taxi and they can actually use it to to make money over time and to to build build wealth but it's very very different cultural uh, mindset, I guess. Over there, saving is really not anything that's kind of valued like it is here. It's not necessarily something that's like, oh, well, they're a good saver. If you're, if you're, if they're very socialistic and environmental. So if you're saving, you're really almost thought of as selfish because you most likely have a family member or a friend who's in the hospital or may need your help. And so it would not necessarily be, um, socially smiled upon for you to just kind of be hoarding money. So a lot of times they'll, um, their savings goes into kind of building a house and they, because the loan situation doesn't work like it is over here, you're kind of build, literally building a house brick by brick as you can afford it. You can afford a brick, you go buy a brick and put it on. I mean, it's almost as, as simple as that. Um, but trying to integrate kind of that, savings culture that we we have over there just doesn't work so a lot of a lot of trial and error as far as what works and what um, can ultimately make the most difference has been the biggest learning experience for me I won't say that I haven't figured out yet well so I find this so I think it's such a good example where you just had this passion and you just kept following it um has this and not that this is why you do any of this but has this helped your business and kind of and your relationship with clients? Um, a lot of a lot of my clients know that I'm involved uh, with Heartbeat for Hope. I've certainly not hidden that. And then I also I make a pledge for any of my clients that 10% of the gross investment management fees that I collect actually goes back into basically a nonprofit of their choice. And that serves a couple, I mean, good reasons. One, it's a great marketing technique, and people uh, really love to. 
uh, partner with a company who's also involved in the community. And then people, I want to know what my clients are interested in. I want to know what they're passionate about. And so it allows me to connect with my clients on another level. It allows me to offer um, some guidance on a charitable giving standpoint. And then it also allows me to partner with another charity, either in Oklahoma community or another charity that they might be, my clients might be interested in. And so that's a good partnership for me and that, that we're able to, to build that local community too. And then anytime that there isn't necessarily a charity um, that somebody is passionate about, I let them know that, you know, for me, my passion is Heartbeat for Hope and this is what I'm doing. And so anytime anybody doesn't necessarily have a, a charity that they are passionate about, that 10% goes um, to Heartbeat for Hope too. And so I try to, I try to be as open about um, when I'm going and what I'm doing and what, um, what the needs are and what the support level is with my clients too. Oh, that's really neat. So as we're kind of wrapping up, what's next for you? I feel like you have so many different interests. Uh, what are you, you working on that you're really excited about or, or kind of what's coming up for you? <laughs> well, I, my number one goal this year is to finish my dissertation. And so that is, that is a lot of people asking me kind of what, what's next for me. And I know that I am not going back to school. I can, that is 100% what I, what I can say. Um, but I do think that I would like to do a couple new things with my business. I've got a couple ideas um, on the consulting side. And I think I would like to even partner with uh, other financial planners that may need some, some help on the investment side, knowing that you know, working with somebody who has the same mindset as them and that has the same um, values as them and has the same passions as them, uh, maybe bringing someone to do my planning for me that has more passions for financial planning and doing more partnerships like that. I'm really excited about. Oh, that's great. So for the listener who is just starting out, whether they're studying for their CFP exam or kind of within those first couple years of their career, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, get in meetings with as many people as you can. That is absolutely what I think was the most valuable thing to me is that I was able to be in meetings with who people who I consider to be the very, very best at taking care of clients in the world. And so I was, we had... I was able to go and be in meetings and hear how other people approach situations, hear how other people kind of not spin, but can approach a certain problem in a way that can make a client feel um, very much taken care of, very comfortable. What even body language you need to pay attention to. There's just so much that you can't read about in a book um, that you need to get as much exposure as you can can possibly ask you, even if you're just going up to somebody that you know is a rainmaker or that you know takes care of their clients or know does, know does things well, just say, hey, if you ever have a meeting, would you mind me just sitting in? I would really like to learn from you and just soak that in as much as you possibly can. Okay. So where did you go for this? I mean, you, you had other advisors outside of your firm that were letting you sit in on No, meetings? no, no. The, within okay. my firm. So if you work okay. for a smaller firm, that's harder. But uh, yeah, within your firm, even if it's not kind of your direct report, um, you know, kind of if, if you do have the time, if, you're, if, you're client, if your employer will allow that, just see if you can get as much exposure to um, what works well and who works well. And that will pay dividends, certainly. Well, is there anything else as we wrap up, Amy? 
yeah, get get educated and get uh, get that experience. And and this is an amazing career. I'm very like ex- extremely happy that I, I tripped and fell into it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you again next week.